Welcome to episode two of Get Up in the Cool, old time music with Cameron DeWitt and friends. Today we have a very special friend on the show, Harry Bullock. This year, Harry released his book of transcriptions called Mississippi Fiddle Tunes and Songs from the 1930s. And we're going to play a few tunes from it. These tunes are really interesting. Definitely a departure from your typical Appalachian stuff. I'm excited for you, is what I'm trying to say. So, I have a bit of a mentor crush on Harry. Ever had one of those? It's, it's just pretty great as an adult to have people in your life that make you feel like a student again. Like there's room to grow and things to experience and wisdom to be gained. I try to act cool around him, but everything I say has a real teach me sensei energy to it. Not sure how much of that comes through. All that is to say, I'm really honored to have him on the show. He really thinks about these tunes and what they mean, and he's really eloquent when he talks about them. But Harry doesn't let his thoughtfulness get in the way of having fun. He's one of the most emotive and whimsical players I've had the pleasure of jamming with. All right, uh, enough gushing. Let's get this thing started. Harry Bullock, everyone. podcast thanks for being on it harry it's so nice to be here in my house uh-huh <laughs> this is harry bullock and we're in his lair in uh hopewell junction uh address is follows write this down <laughs> come over and visit bring your instruments <laughs> yeah uh there's light everywhere and there's a amazing view and it's a good place to make music amen yeah <sighs> Uh, so that, that tune's from 
an obscure WPA pamphlet where the, I believe the source or some relative of theirs wrote the tune down, I suspect not terribly well, uh-huh. and it was collected or, or picked up by A.P. Hudson, who was working on the first book of Mississippi folk songs, really the only book. Hmm. Uh, it had no music notation, just the lyrics. That came out in 1936 on the University of North Carolina. But there were something like 40 tunes that he'd been given the notation for. This children's song, play party song, being one of them. The instructions for the dance are in his book, the words are in his book, but the melody is in this WPA pamphlet that came out in 37. Talk about obscure. That That's about as obscure as it gets. Yeah, and then I messed with it to make it playable. I mean, yeah. I have made changes to it. So you've never heard anyone else play it? Oh, no. And you've just seen some dots. Yeah, and there's only the one verse. I, I came up with the others. Yeah. <laughs> so now it has a storyline, which m- most play party songs don't. They're just kind of random. Right. Uh, yeah, tell, tell us more about, like, this, uh, about your new book and the CD and the, um, the big uh, source recordings, multi-CD package, all that stuff. And how long have you been working on this? And yeah, tell us more. Well, basically this year, 2016, um, the world has to get ready for a wave of Mississippiana. We're heading for <laughs> world cultural domination. Um, yeah, it started. There, there's a 400-page book on the University, of Miss- University Press of Mississippi imprint that uh, Steve Austin and I uh, worked on. It's mostly um, WPA field work that was either never published or not published in in its complete. Um, There were, in the summer of 1936, uh, there were field workers in Mississippi, well, there were music teachers in Mississippi working for the Federal Music Project. The whole point of the WPA was to put people back to work and to give employment where there was no employment. So they were out of work music teachers in Mississippi, yeah. but somewhere over 100, 120, 130. And they were doing fine. They got funded in 35, they started working in 36, and then there was an outbreak of polio. And the state health department shut down all teaching the state to cut the vectors of transmission. Yeah. So then they had the um, Jerome Sage, the head of the uh, federal music project in Mississippi had amazing political problem on the horizon. 100 people on the payroll, nothing to do. Republicans were going to rip them apart over this. Yeah. Uh, the, the anti-New Deal uh, opposition was yeah. really vocal and really hated the arts projects anyway. <laughs> Sounds about right. They were the tiniest part of the whole WPA and they got most of the, bad, the, most of the press and all of the bad press. Yeah. So anyway, uh, big problem coming over the hill. And the answer was, oh, let's go collect folk music. And they had no clue. And that's kind of beautiful. They sent over 100 untrained field workers out in the summer of 1936 (laughs) with kind of skimpy instruction. I assume they were uh, classical piano and uh, violin teachers, though I don't know. Yeah. Uh, They were not folk musicians. And they were told, go get this exotic stuff. And they brought back anything they could find because they got paid for bringing stuff back. So it's like throwing a net out and bringing back a sampler of vernacular music in the day. Uh-huh. Um, there are songs that were cribbed off 78s. Um, there were uh, sp- spirituals, um, some old-timey songs, some, a, lot of, a lot of minstrel show songs, uh, play party songs, 
you name it, it showed up. One of the most popular songs, which was collected, I think, nine times, nine different pieces of sheet music around the state, was a Georgian folk song called Dark Eyes. And I mean, USSR kind of Georgia. Okay. <laughs> because it must have been popular in sheet music or on the radio. Huh. Django Reinhardt recorded it a few, later, a few years later. Go figure. Anyway, <laughs> a real potpourri of stuff. They, they were about in excess of 3,500 uh, songs and fiddle tunes in manuscript form. No yeah. recordings. Didn't have the technology or the money. Uh, 180 of those are fiddle tunes. It took me a batch of trips to the archives to sort that out. I've, I've spent the last four or five-ish years working on this set of projects, um, starting with discovering this trove of uh, manuscript in the Mississippi State Archive to my utter astonishment that it was there. And That's such the only quantity. place where it is. Yeah, yeah it still oh is goodness. there. Well, no, it's in the, my book now. Right, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I didn't want anyone else to have to do the work and go digging through the archives. Sure. Um, of that 180 tunes... As with any collection, some are wonderful, some are just kind of what you'd expect, and some are peculiar. But there's some real <laughs> gems in there, and we'll be playing some of those today. Yeah, it's um, gems. I've recorded a CD with Brian and with my other friends um, to just demonstrate the tunes for what I think are like the 23 most interesting um, to get the tunes back being played again. And I'll be teaching and doing workshops and traveling this year to get the word out. Um, I worked with Document Records to produce a three CD set of all of the Library of Congress recordings that were done in 1939, following up on this manuscript. Uh, Charles Seeger saw the manuscripts and was excited about it, and the last gasp of the federal arts projects. They got a, a converted w World War I ambulance, put a New Yorker in it with sound recording equipment to cut 78 RPM discs, sent him down for a three-month trip, a month of which was in Mississippi, where they did the best work. He recorded, I think, 400 performances, huh. uh, two and three and four, to five and six to a disc, because the discs were in short supply. So they're very short. It's like, Fiddler, play it once through, please. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> which makes the results a little more questionable, but perhaps more interesting. Yeah. For the quirks of memory and age. Um, so uh, inspired by the sheet music, which they were look, Charles Seeger was looking at in, in the beginning of 39. They get the idea to send the truck down. It goes down in the summer. They record 400 pieces and um, bring it back to Washington. And then the anti-New Deal opposition kills the funding for all the arts, arts projects and everything goes into archives. The recordings, uh, uh, tunes here and there, like W.E. Clanch's uh, Grub Springs, have been reissued on sure. Library of Congress discs, which have been also coming out on like Rounder and other CDs. But the entirety of all 147, I think, banjo and fiddle tunes have never been heard before. Yeah. Uh, there's some Stephen B. Tucker and a lot of banjo stuff that just has not been heard. Wow. So it's really a, a great thing to get it all together. So the book has these tunes from the manuscripts, all of them, all the fiddle tunes that were collected, and all of the fiddle tunes that were recorded. Uh, Steve Austin and I did transcriptions of those. So it's all audible. And then there's four tunes from Alvis Massengale, um, who was recorded in the, in the 30s with the Newton County Hillbillies in Mississippi, uh, just because I thought they were cool tunes and they were from field recordings from the 70s that nobody's got access to, so I wanted to get the tunes out. And uh, he was interviewed for the WPA and should have been recorded in 39, but they, he's a commercial fiddler, so they didn't do it, right. I assume. I don't actually know the reasoning for that. 
So that's, that's the first wave of this stuff, and I'm working on some 70s field recordings to see if we can get them out on FRC, Field Recorders Collective. I'm in the yeah. middle of that. So we're going to have this tidal wave of Mississippi fiddle tunes, and the entire old-timey community is going to sink under them. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> I have two friends in Philly who've, who've bought the book so far, and hopefully we're going to start... Now we sold three. ...getting more, <laughs> more Mississippian uh, in the... Uh, in the in the West Philadelphia jams, hopefully Great. it'll start working its way in there. Well, I'll, I'll see if I can come down and pollute the jam. Please, please do. <laughs> uh, yeah, do you want to do this, um, Billy in the Low Ground? That does not sound like Billy in the Low Ground that I any, any Billy that I've ever heard. There's two standard versions of Billy in the Low Ground. Um, uh, the Texas one. Um, but this is this one is neither, mm-hmm. and there's a fourth one in the book as well, quite exotic, from an African American fiddler. This is from J. E. Mormon, and I know almost nothing about J. E. Mormon except here's the he had a handful of tunes that are in the book, and they're they're good ones. Yeah. So I, I need a tune real quick, but we'll just like cut cut right to it. Okay, not blazing tempo. Okay. Okay, one. Thank you. 
Yeah, those are a hoot. Those are a lot of fun. The second one, uh, which we didn't announce before, is uh, Gulfport, and it's from J.E. Shoemaker, another... Another J.E. <laughs> he has three of them. Um, unknown, I'm not even sure if J.E.'s male or female, I assume male. I think they might have mentioned it otherwise. They're somewhat careful to indicate race and sex yeah. in, the, in the field notes. Oh, do you think because of just that feels culturally important? important to the field recorders 1939 mississippi they, they were african-american there was a, a hyphen c lowercase c hyphen hyphen lowercase i'm sorry i mean paren lowercase c per, close what paren. is the lowercase c Sample. colored colored okay so this it's so outside my paradigm i was like what is this <laughs> yeah it's outside my paradigm and i mean i was born in 54 and caught the tail end of some of the segregation in the south but being young and white i was not where it was visible yeah you don't have to notice if you don't want to if you're really young you don't know to look yeah did you grow up in mississippi no um alabama mostly um i was first year was in mississippi my grandparents are there i kept going back and spending summers there yeah and now that my folks are gone what anchor i have yeah region is in mississippi so I go down every now and then. So that's your connection. It's family. And to uh, my, my mom was born in Carroll County, in Carrollton, the county seat. I was born in the hospital down in the Delta, 14 miles away in Greenwood, different county, on the banks of the Yazoo River. Um, and my heroes, uh, Narmer and Smith, uh-huh. uh, were from Carroll County. Do they do that Avalon Quick Step? Yes. They have- I love that. That's a great tune. Are they like the, is that the most popular version of it? It's the version. It's of it. the that's version. The okay. So that's. I should mention that I, I did a homage recording 2004 of Carroll County tunes, mostly Narmer and Smith. And then much later, a couple of years ago, it got approached by documents to do the liner notes for the complete reissue of Narmer and Smith. Wonderful. Which, which was wonderful since I had attempted to get it done years uh-huh. before and no one was interested. And it's like, well, the number came up. Um, where was I going with it? I have no idea. Oh, uh, Mississippi John Hurt was from Carroll County. And this African-American fiddler, I don't know if we're playing any of his tunes but today, but uh, one of the more interesting bits in the book is are tunes from an African-American from Teoc, which is about uh, 10 miles, under 10 miles from Carrollton, which is the county seat. And uh, his name was Alvin Alsop. Is that the sweet milk and peaches? Yes. That, yeah. 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 That's a really interesting one. Yeah. Which is interesting because the only other sweet milk and peaches we know is from Willie Narmer, who was in the same county, yeah. younger. And my, and if you've listened to much Willie Narmer's fiddle tunes, they bear little, they bear a few measures of resemblance to whatever his source might have been, and then they kind of go off into a very creative place. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm very fond of it. I mean, he he just. Uh, I think he basically got a, a little piece of a tune and couldn't, wanted to play it, couldn't remember it, and made up stuff. And he yeah. made up great stuff. Um, in the case of Sweet Milk and Peaches, if he heard Alvin Alsop, I think all he came home with was the title and the key of D. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm always curious about, like, you know, this traditional music. When is the tune, when was it written, and when was it, like, inherited, and what, and where's the line... It's always, there's a, I never know. <laughs> there's a great quote from Charles Smith, uh, um, a transitional fiddler in, in Mississippi, 
There's field recordings from the 70s. It, it tends toward bluegrass, more modern player. But he's talking about his childhood when he was learning to play fiddle. And this is pre-recording technology, though they had the radio. Yeah. Kind of like what we're doing today. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> <laughs> but the point was that he did not learn any of his... Uh... Hey. Welcome back. Nice to see you all. Hmm. So, Charles Smith was a fiddler in Mississippi, a transitional fiddler. And there's a great quote, uh, and I won't do it exactly, but the gist of it is that he learned by ear. He did not resort to recordings, though there were some available in mm -hmm. the 40s when he was learning. Um, like my friend Brian, he learned it all from people. And he would learn, he would like go to a dance and, and hear a tune that was really great, and he would learn it on the spot. He would memorize it. He would listen really hard. Mm -hmm. And then he would go home and try to play it three or four hours later when he could get to his fiddle. Yeah. And as he said, he would remember great chunks of it, but then there'd be these holes, and it was nothing to do but fill them in with something. Yeah. So he, and his, his quote is, I learned all my tunes wrong. Yeah. But that's, that's the tradition this access to recordings and slow downer and we can get every little every little bow twitch just like the source yeah is a historical aberration yeah i mean we're all doing it and it's cool what you can get and it's really interesting to know all that stuff yeah but what's that actually got to do with transmitting music mm -hmm. i mean it it kind of embalms it in a way and here we are doing it again here we are <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, I was thinking the same thing about um, like the written word too. You know, it's like people didn't used to remember things unless they had a beat and unless they had a rhyme scheme. You know, it's like no one, that's why no one memorizes, uh, you know, the English translation of the Torah is <laughs> because it doesn't sound very good. Mm -hmm. But in Hebrew, that's like, that's like bebop, you know, yeah. and like, that's why it lasted so long, you know, and you know, it was written down, but no one, barely anybody knew how to read it. And I don't know how long it had been around before it was written down. And, you know, things like that. It's like the idea of the music and the meaning being sort of Tied. simultaneously, you know, they're the same. Mm -hmm. And uh, the hook of or the catch um, of the tune or the poem or whatever, it just it's all holistic and uh it's how our brains work best. Yeah. It's, it's actually the easiest format for us to remember. Yeah. The more data you have about a single thing, the easier it is to pull it out of long-term memory. That's why those, um, like all those Martin Luther King like speeches, I mean, that's like why they're so famous is just because they're like, he's just like spitting bars, you know, they're like, mm -hmm. they... Uh, and they have repeated phrases. Yeah. They just feel good to listen to. No, it's and, out of the uh, church. Yeah. Well, you want to play this um, Sweet Milk and Peaches by, say the name again? Alvin Alsop. Alvin Alsop. I don't know if it's by, though no one else plays it. I'm, but From. Who, who knows what that means? And then. Yeah. Some combination of by and from. There, there are 14 tunes and fragments of there, thereof from him, accredited to him. Yeah. Uh, Miss Virginia Prince was the collector, whatever that actually means. 
Um, and one of the tunes, I can't imagine that anyone in the state of Mississippi was able to play at the time. <laughs> There's a ridiculously fast third or, f- or fifth position bit way up the way up the neck. Yeah. At the end, that's just. I I it, it, I can't imagine that a fiddler who played the other tunes as his meat and potatoes would go there. Yeah. And I think what happened is that they just cribbed something from a book to pad it, so they got paid for that week. Yeah. I can't really explain it any other way. Um, and I don't play it for the very reasons I just named. Uh-huh. It being, even if I did the, the, the work to be able to play it, who's going to play it with me? Right. What's the point? It seems alien. It seems very English to me. Hornpipey. Um, and so, then do you want to go into White Hat after this? Sure. Yeah, what's the deal with... Uh, uh, White, White Hat's Hat. another tune from the mysterious <coughs> J.E. Shoemaker that I know yeah. nothing about. Other than there was, uh, the tunes were collected and attributed to somebody in 1936. Again, these are all from manuscript. There are no actual recordings other than the ones I just made. And this. And this, (laughs) yeah. Okay, so uh, let me set, uh, give me a pass on Sweet Milk and Peaches to set it in, in time. Oh, um... Yeah, let me just do a pass and come in. Oh, you're going to, okay. You get to come in on second pass. No, I wasn't going to make you start it. It's like, do a pass? Like, yeah, Yeah. obviously. Take a pass. (laughs) Um, This this tune has, uh, the last beat in it is a rest, and it's the only one in the book like that. So I think the rest is really kind of, it's more important than the rest of it. So make sure you play the rest. Okay. (laughs) Well...
Yeah. It feels good. It feels good to play it nice and nice and slow with a little swing. That's been something I've been working on lately is trying to trying to slow down, especially on banjo because there's so little sustain that all the subdivisions are real clear like uh, when you're slow. There's so many more opportunities to not get in the pocket, and it's kind of been my, my discipline for the last couple weeks. The pocket's a lot deeper on the slower it's tune. It's deeper. <laughs> I was playing with uh, Brad, and he's he's playing so slow and so pretty and so perfectly and we're trying to do banjo duets together so we're both trying to get in the pocket going really slow that's the i was like sweating i was listening so hard trying to like uh try to make sure i maintain that groove yeah that's once you start thinking about it, it's harder but if you can relax into it, it yeah just, it's something about when you put your foot down it feels like it just keeps going through the floor yeah you, know, you want to go all the way down <laughs> Um, and I think these tunes, a lot of these tunes on the record, this, the pace is a little slower. Maybe I'm just older and maybe I'm more experienced. I don't know. <laughs> Part of it's conscious, though, and it's sure. they're teaching. I'm, I want to get the tunes out there. Yeah. This is not about my playing. And I'm trying to do as little other than play the tune as yeah. possible just to get them out. Lord knows I've done enough of the other kinds of projects. <laughs> There's some really fun Harry Bullock style arranging, though, on this on this <laughs> CD. Especially... Which tune was it? It has this really fun, just wacky slide guitar. Oh, stuff. that's that's Ken Bloom. That's Ken. <laughs> yeah, I would like to take credit for the arranging, but it's usually Brian or or Ken. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Ken has incredibly deep pockets of musical wisdom and goofiness. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I I I know where a lot of them are now because I've been recording with him since what eighty nine, eighty eight. Um, and we've had ample <laughs> opportunities to explore how goofy we can get. And yeah. Some of the projects it has been there. just, how far can I get him? <laughs> how stupid can I get him to make this? And we just keep pushing each other on um, until we hit the floor laughing, and then we decide we must be done. Yeah. Um, for the longest time, when I, I first started playing regularly with Brian, we had a restaurant gig, and we just go play three hours straight yeah. on a Thursday night. And I knew it was a good night, and there were many. Usually, it was a good night. When after every tune, we just would have to stop because we were laughing too hard. <laughs> um, I think that uh, maybe it was humor, but maybe it was just joy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's definitely Ken Blum. I wish I could take credit for that, but <laughs> just honored to know him. Um, let's play this. Uh... <laughs> Carve that possum. Oh yes, what a delicate sentiment. <laughs> this is a Carroll County tune. There's there's really not very many of them. Uh, there's the Narmer and Smith. Um, there's the Alvin Alsop, and then there's this tune, and there's some other tunes by people like from Winona, right on the edge of the county. But uh, so I was really delighted to see yet another from my home county, my mom's home county, actually. Uh.
Lovely. <laughs> That's a tough one. It's all those repeated notes. You have to figure out how to translate that to banjo. And the A part and the B part just don't feel very different. Yep. And they, but they're just enough different to really mess you up. Uh-huh. It took, took me a while to figure that out. I was like, what? Wait, what? What's li- going on here? Listen close and pay attention so you keep the repeats, repeats straight. Yeah. Good for those brain cells. Mm-hmm. And some of the, the tunes on this last project, the simplest ones are the hardest to play. Man, you're telling me. Yeah, <laughs> I was listening. Yeah, the slow, simple ones, they're very uh, exposed and very revealing. And the groove has to be very deep or, yeah. you know, or there's really no point. Oh. Yeah, it's a different head. Well, how, did you, how did you get into playing old time music? When did that happen for you? I have several stories, but the one that I've been telling lately, and they're all true, actually, because there's access points along the way. It's, sure. it's a path. Sure. Um, I had bought a fiddle. I'd gone to Babria uh, Christmas School, John C. Campbell Christmas School. Um, a teacher of mine had sent me down there. Did you say Christmas School? At Berea, Kentucky. It was John C. Campbell. It's in Brasstown now, but it was in Berea then. And uh, I'd bought a fiddle. And one could say I started there, but I, here's the story I like better. I bought the fiddle and then went home and squeaked on it and then said, put it under the bed where it won't hurt anyone. Yeah. uh. (laughs) Fiddle's ugly to start on. And it's years before anyone would want to be anywhere near that squealing beast after you've been starting out. Um, I'd moved to New York. I was uh, hell-bent on being a cartoonist. Um, And I went to New York because I could study with Harvey Kurtzman, who was the first art director for Mad Magazine and a brilliant cartoonist. And Will Eisner was also teaching, who did a seminal strip called The Spirit. Two of the grand masters of cartooning. Yeah. And I could study with him. It's great. I didn't get along all that well with Eisner and, and basically discovered I wasn't very good at cartooning. But <laughs> I'd signed up for this one-panel gag cartoon course with Harvey, and he was a wonderful man. Very sweet, very helpful. And, and I was busting a gut trying to do it, and I was terrible. And he knew it, but he appreciated I was working at it. And I was happy in his class, except when I handed him the homework and went, oh, God, it's not funny. I <laughs> uh, just didn't have that bone in me. But like I said, he was a real gentleman. At least not for the visual medium. No, no. Uh, but he brought all his friends in. Like I got to watch Gan Wilson come to class and draw for us hmm. um, and a bunch of other cartoonists that were world famous. And one day he brought in R. Crumb's sketchbook. Robert Crumb, the guy who invented underground comics, Mr. Natural, the Janis Joplin, um, Cheap Thrills record cover, and a lot of comics about music in 78s. He was a 78 collector. He had a band at the time. The second album by the Cheap Suit Serenaders had just come out. It was one of my favorite records. I played guitar and auto harp and sang and did the, the singer-songwriter shtick about this time. And I was in school in New York and new to New York and didn't know much of anybody. Anyway, I'm in Harvey's class and, he, and he's showing us this book, this sketchbook, brilliant drawings. Um, and he says, because he, he's the art director for Esquire magazine and he's got that sketchbook so he can make photocopies and publish some of the drawings. And he says his friend Crum is gonna be in Chicago in a, in a month or so and it wouldn't take much to get him and his band to come to New York. And maybe some of you students could like get him a couple of gigs Sign me up. Yeah. Um, I wasn't much of a hustler, but I was in the team that got it done. And I took up, I was at every, all three concerts and 
I found myself, you know, I was taking up the money, I was in the back, and I found myself like waltzing around the room, just raptured by the music. Fiddles playing Italian waltzes from mm. a novelty band doing tunes from the 30s, a string yeah. band. Fiddle came out from under the bed. Yeah. All my, my peers that have learned this hard-driving Southern music, this patron saint is Tommy Jarrell. Mm-hmm. And he's great, and I listened to that stuff, and I worked on it. But the guy that maybe pulled the fiddle out from under the bed was R. Crumb. No way. <laughs> <laughs> I would say you're making it up if it wasn't so specific. Yeah. Uh, I was there. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I have the poster in my studio of those concerts. Man, I, I'm going to go take a look at that afterwards. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my origin story. And that's the, sort, the start of my superpowers. Yeah. So you started... Now, when, when you went home and pulled out the fiddle, did you start playing Italian waltzes? Uh, well, they the, the, really only recorded one. And yeah, I used to play it, and I've, I've forgotten the name and the tune now. But it got me started. I tried to play Irish music. I took lessons with that, and then I realized I couldn't drink enough, <laughs> which sounds derogatory. But I mean, it's all about having a social group, and it just didn't fit, fit well. Yeah. I love the music. And then I found friends that played old-time. There was a little house session, friend, uh, now a friend, uh, was doing in Park Slope, and I, I threw, threw, somehow through the network, I'd gone to concerts, and someone said, hey, you ought to go to Jerry's house on Monday nights. And um, it, you know, it, they weren't great musicians there, but they were friendly folks, yeah. and it was, the level was low enough, I wasn't intimidated. And I spent about six months learning my first tunes, and I didn't know any of them week one, I didn't know any of them week two, and like six months in, I, I had suddenly had 80% and I could play all of them. So I went from nothing to yeah. a repertoire, and that was kind of useful because I got the idea of things and the sure. rhythm, and but technique took a long time. Uh-huh. That was a rough, two, ugly two years for everybody around me. I've been thinking about not making the switch, but adding fiddle at some point, learning how to... Well, you have a head start because you speak the dialect now. Yeah. It'll only be ugly for about a year. I've been watching... <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, I, I just did an episode with uh, Rye Burhans, and he, uh, he's only been playing for a year. He sounds great. I think he wakes up every morning and gets right to the fiddle plan. I, I think you can manage to speak obsession and learn this. Uh-huh. <laughs> there really is no other good way. Yeah. Well, um, it's going to take me a minute to get to G, but let's uh, let's do the sugar in the gourd, and uh, we'll end it there. Sound okay, good? I want to switch instruments. Okay, great. Meet back at five. <laughs> and then all of a sudden we were in tune. One can hope. Uh, so this this will be the last one. Uh, so thanks so much for doing this and for your hospitality and having me in your wonderful home and playing playing these never-before-heard before tunes with me. This is awesome. It's my pleasure. Yeah. You'll have to come back. I will. With or without the recording gear. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll take this a little on the lazy side because I'm playing a beast that moves a little slower. Yeah. Um. And this is from, I think, Alvin Alsop, uh, Carroll County, uh, 1936 manuscript. It's sugar in the gourd. And now that you've got that phrase in your mind, erase it because this ain't those same notes that you think you're going to hear. Thank you. 
modern-day renaissance man Brian Slattery met us at Harry's house, and he did an episode, too. After we ate some of the best roasted beets that I've ever had, we had ourselves a little jam, which I recorded. If you want to hear the three of us play one of my favorite tunes ever, Martin's Juba, sign up to be a patron of Get Up in the Cool. Just go to my website, camerondewitt.com, C-A-M-E-R-O-N, D-E-W-H-I-T-T.com and click on the button that says Patreon. Check out the other rewards when you get there. And remember, you're not buying the rewards, you're funding the show and being rewarded for your generosity. Big thanks to my first patrons, future guest on the show, Deb Justice, and my dad. Thanks, Dad. I'm probably going to use that money to buy some rechargeable batteries for my field recorder because right now I'm burning through double A's like Skittles. If you want Harry's new book, the best way to find it is to Google Mississippi fiddle tunes and songs from the 1930s. The top two results are links to buy it at the University Press of Mississippi and Amazon. You can also get it at Barnes & Noble. I included links in this episode's description. You can download the recordings from harrybullock.bandcamp.com or order discs from Harry's website, mississippifiddle.com. Finally, share Get Up in the Cool with your friends. If you're listening to this on an iPhone in the podcast app, 
click that little share icon. You know the square with the arrow pointing up? It's in the lower left-hand corner when you maximize the player portion of the app. It's hard to describe. Just swipe around until you find it. Anyway, you can use that function to share episodes on Facebook, Twitter, or even in a text to a friend. The best part is, if someone opens the link on an iPhone, it'll open their podcast app. That means they don't have to remember to search around for it. Right now, sharing a direct app opening link is the most impactful thing you could do for Get Up In The Cool. So, if you can safely do it right now, please, please do so. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Don't forget to subscribe and uh, tune in next week for another episode of Get Up In The Cool.